Jesus. God bless you. You may be seated. Just before the message this morning, we've got an update from Turkey. So watch the screen. that started on Monday morning at 4 a.m. There are many, many people that have lost their lives due to this earthquake. People are waiting outside the rubble to see if their family is pulled out. Last week when Brandon and I went to take food out to give to the people who were waiting for their family to be pulled out of the rubble, we hugged so many people. There's no words to help somebody to comfort them in a time like this, but just that human touch of saying that we're here, that we love you, and we want to help in any way we can. Right now, the big need here is to build soup kitchens in the affected area to get hot meals to these people that are living on the street. We are trying to purchase containers so that we can set up kitchens inside the containers. We know that people are gonna have to stay serving meals in this area for a few months to come. We have many, many, many thousands of people living in tents and they don't have a way to cook food. So having a soup kitchen is life-giving. It's difficult, but we know that the church in America is praying for us. We know that you all are with us in this, and we're thankful that you guys are supporting us through finances and your prayers. We ask that you guys continue to pray. Don't pray just one time. Pray daily for us. Pray for the people that have lost loved ones. Pray that this Muslim country, that they would know the love of their Heavenly Father who created them. Thank you. These situations, they're in the news for a few days and then they are kind of forgotten while the situation continues on for a long time after and we have missionaries all over the world we have an outreach that's taken place all over the world and um, uh, a couple of our missionaries are Scott and McGivney Strickland and they've been missionaries from our church for a number of years they've been serving in Turkey for a number of years so they are they're on the ground and are going to continue to be in the ground and they're actually going to be going to some of the most devastated areas in the next couple of weeks uh, they're going to be taking food and medicine and finances and because of your faithfulness and your generosity we've already been able to send over five hundred dollars to that effort and so we thank you for that and if there's anything else that anybody feels led to give you can just mark an envelope turkey uh, on our website or on our app uh, you can mark it disaster relief, and we'll make sure it gets to Turkey within the, within the next few days. 
And so thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for your giving. Uh, we have baskets back there. We can also give on the app and online. Thank you, CFA family, for your um, faithfulness and your generosity on an ongoing basis with your tithes and your offerings. Guests, we don't ask anything from you. We just want to bless you. If you feel moved to give to this need, that's fine. But we don't, we don't pressure anybody to give at all. Um, just we want you to be obedient to the Lord. And if you're a guest, we just want you to be blessed today. Um, we are in a series of messages right now, and uh, the, the series is called The Mystery and the Masterpiece. This is the third message. The previous messages are on our website, they're on our Facebook page, they're on our YouTube channel. We've got, uh, we've got uh, the messages on Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts, so you can go back and catch up. This is a little bit of an unusual series. And it's a little bit, especially today, a very unusual message. Um, I say to those who are guests today, we're so glad you're here. Give us three Sundays. <laughs> All right? Don't judge us on one. And that, that'd be the case anytime. Don't judge us just on one Sunday. I would challenge you uh, to give us three Sundays. And uh, check us out and come back. This, this message today is a difficult message. Um, let me give you, first of all, just kind of a general overview. It, it, the title is The Mystery and the Masterpiece, and we're focusing on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, a lot of people interpret that and read that as a marriage passage, and it is, but it is not so much a passage about human marriage as it is a passage about the marriage between Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. All throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as Israel's husband, and Israel is referred to as his bride. When Israel began to leave God to serve other gods, he referred to them as cheating on him, committing adultery on him. God is the one who used this kind of terminology. He began a new relationship with a new people, with a new covenant in the New Testament, and Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Now, we dealt with some things the last couple of weeks that in our culture today, the church's view of sexuality, human sexuality, marriage, sexuality between a man and a woman limited to within the confines of marriage, uh, that is weird that's just weird. That's strange. Our culture today does not understand why that, that for millennia, centuries and millennia, the church has said sexual relations are to be confined to a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. And now our, our culture's gone way, way, way off of that today. And about a generation or two ago, a Christian could talk to somebody and they could say, well, this is what the Bible says. And a non-Christian from a couple generations go, Michael, hmm, the Bible says that. Maybe I should think about that and maybe I should consider that. For the most part today, our culture really doesn't care what the Bible says. Some of the things that I'm teaching in this series, I'm convinced, haven't really been taught even in the church. Because, see, the church and, and, and wherever you are at in your life right now, okay, wherever you are at in your life right now, we love you, Jesus loves you. 
Jesus cares about you. These messages are not intended to be angry, finger-shaking, shouting, condemnation messages. We believe there are times in our lives when we can draw a line in the sand and everything that's gone before us can be put in the past and we can live a whole brand new, completely new life changed. So we do believe in speaking the truth in love, and that's our goal. Our goal is to speak the truth but do it in love. We don't just want to speak the truth without love. That's just an angry, mad-faced Christian, right? We don't want to speak the truth without love. There are some people who want to love so much they will avoid ever speaking some things of truth. And I don't think that's real love. So I think we have to find this balance of speaking the truth in love. And that's what we're trying to do in this series. So everything we say is an effort to speak the truth of what the Bible says and to speak it in love. And as I was thinking a number of years ago about, boy, there's such a huge difference between the things the church has historically taught and the way that the culture at large is going. And it just seems like everybody's angry and everybody's shouting at each other and people are in the streets and they're holding signs and they're pointing fingers and they're shouting. And I began to ask myself, how could I sit down with somebody who has a completely different lifestyle than me, has a completely different viewpoint of these issues than I do, and sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk congenially and nicely without shouting and getting in each other's face over it. That, that was my goal. And I began to think that just about everybody knows what the Bible says, okay? People know the Bible says this is something you should do, this is something you shouldn't do, these are the rights, these are the wrongs, especially when it comes to human sexuality and marriage. People know what the Bible says, but they don't know why the Bible says it. And I thought, rather than just saying, well, the Bible says this, well, I don't care what the Bible says, but the Bible says this, but I don't care what the Bible says. Well, can I tell you why? Why the Bible says it? And so that's why we began to get into it. And, and just very, very, very briefly, again, if you'll go back and listen to the last two messages, if God is the husband and Israel is the bride... God, God is not a male in the sense that I am a male. God's not a male in the sense that any other man in this place is a male. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. But he chose to speak of himself in male terminology because he's given this picture. Jesus said in the New Testament that there's not going to be marriage in heaven because we're going to be the bride of Christ. So I'm not going to be married to my wife in heaven. I know that's a shock to somebody. And people think, oh, we're just going to be in heaven, our family. We're going to have our mansion. We're going to have a pool outside. And heaven's just going to be awesome. And it's just, just going to be family reunions all the time. It's not going to be like like that heaven's going to be nothing like this place heaven's going to be so much better than this place this place won't even compare but we will be the bride of christ this is where i tell guys time to get in touch with your feminine side guys because because we will be the bride of christ so when we're talking about marriage don't tune out if you're not married don't tune out if you're not married if you're single if you were widowed if you're divorced if you're whatever because the whole point of this is human marriage is supposed to be a picture of the relationship God wants to have with people. Every aspect of human marriage in this life. And this is why that sexual relations is confined within marriage. Because there's only one God. Multiple relationships would show a picture of multiple gods. Or multiple ways to reach God. But there's only one God. And there's only one way to God. Jesus said I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so, so that's why we believe that, that we have to come to a point in our lives. Where our relationship is exclusive. And it has to be in a covenant. And so we're, we're a husband, we're a wife, in a covenant, and that is the picture. Anything outside of that doesn't show the picture of Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. Much, much more on that over the past two messages. And that brings us to where we are today. 
Now, as I said, if you're here for the first time, give, give us three Sundays. This, this is, this is going to be a difficult message. So I'll be honest with you out front. But let me tell you something, and, and for our church people as well, whenever, whenever you, you say, boy, that was, a, that was a hard, hard message. Whenever there's a hard message, it is, it is harder for the person who is delivering the message than it is for the person who's receiving the message. This is a hard message to deliver, but I take from Acts chapter 20 where the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, my goal was to preach to you the whole counsel of God. That's my goal. If I had enough time, and I don't think I'll have enough time in my lifetime, I don't think I'll have enough health, strength, and energy to preach through the whole Bible. Last year we started through Genesis, we're in a little break, in a few weeks we're going to get back to Genesis. I would love to teach every verse in the Bible. I've, I've taught all the way through Ezekiel, I've taught all the way through Daniel, I've taught all the way through Revelation, I've taught all the way through Matthew and Luke and John and I, Ephesians, there's different books of the Bible, I've taught all the way through, there's some books of the Bible I haven't, I would love to teach verse by verse through every book of the Bible and not miss a verse, there's some weird ones in there, we're going to read one today, it's really weird, some of you probably have never seen it never heard it and your head's going to fall off when i read it just hang on with me okay because hard messages are hard to deliver you know some people say well what do you want first the bad news or the good news i made that choice the bad news is coming first okay we're going to get to the good news the next two messages in this series are going to be beautiful okay so don't be turned off by today. The next two messages are going to be beautiful. And I say that not only to our guests, I say that to our church people. Don't quit this church and run out on me because of this message today. The next two weeks are going to be, the next two messages in this series are going to be beautiful. But sometimes, sometimes we have to know how really bad the bad news is before we know how really good the good news is. And so that's what today is about so the bad news first we're going to get to the good news the next two weeks are going to be beautiful this is a hard message for me to deliver and give us three sundays okay let's pray father speak to us lord we believe every every word of scripture has a point every word from genesis to revelation old testament new testament has a point and has something to teach us so i, pr I pray god that you would soften our hearts that you would open our hearts, that you would open our spirits. Let us hear what you have to say. I pray that, I pray, Lord, that there wouldn't be any offense today. My goal is not to offend. My goal is not to shock, though some things are going to be shocking. That's not my goal. My goal is simply to teach your word. So, Lord, I come humbly as the teacher. I come humbly. And I ask your Holy Spirit to take over and I ask your Holy Spirit to speak through me. And I ask that we would and that every person would realize today they've been prayed for already. Every person that's in this place has been prayed for. The chair they're sitting in has been prayed for. We've prayed that people would be drawn to this place by the Holy Spirit for this time. So there's a reason that each person is here today, whether for the first time or they've been a member of this church for 30 years. Lord. Every person is here today for a reason, to hear something you want to hear. And Lord, mainly this is about the marriage between you and us. But the marriages and the way we express our the gift, the beautiful gift, the gift, the wonderful gift of sexuality you've given us. The way you desire for it to be expressed is, is that it would be a reflection of your great and passionate love for us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week we looked at Ezekiel chapter 16. That was pretty provocative. But this is even more so today. And I'm not going to read the entire chapter. But I encourage you to take some time to read this chapter, Ezekiel chapter 23. You may be surprised at what is actually in the Bible. Now, don't be tempted to read it now because then you won't hear what I'm saying. So just follow along with me and and then later you'll be able to read Ezekiel chapter 23 with some new eyes. But I don't think it's a shock to anybody for me to say that we live in a society and in a culture where depictions of sexuality have become very graphic. And very open and very common in today's media and what, what some people would consider to be the worst kinds of pornography are widely accepted, and and they're just forms of entertainment that can be downloaded quickly onto a smartphone anywhere in the world. But the picture that God designed, the picture that we have been describing over these next few weeks, and as I said, is going to get beautiful next week, that picture has become nearly lost in our culture. For many generations... I believe leaders of churches have just, they've just been afraid, scared to death to walk into these waters. I'm a little nervous this morning myself. You see, I still hear, I still hear a lot about moral lists of rights and wrongs. These are the right things to do. These are the wrong things to do. These are the should do's. These are the don't do's. But I almost hear nothing about the purpose of marriage and sexuality as God gave it to us. God has always intended for our human relationships to be a reflection of the relationship he wants with his people. And our culture's acceptance of so many, again, I don't hate anybody, I'm just trying to teach the truth of the word in love. Society's acceptance of so many various sexual practices today is all but completely destroying God's picture of this intended relationship. I wrote a book about this. I believe I have one book left back there. I believe I have two books left in my office. So if somebody grabs that one and you want a book and you didn't get it, the book will give full explanations and background of all of this. See me. I'll give you the last two in my office if that one runs out. And I think there's about five on Amazon right now, but it's unlimited on Kindle and on Audible. But society's acceptance is destroying the picture, the masterpiece that God designed to paint of the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. Now, I believe, I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe that God is the ultimate author of every word. So it's his words, not Ezekiel's words, not Isaiah's words, not Daniel's words, not Matthew's words, not John's words, not Paul's words. These are God's Words. And I don't believe God made any mistakes in his word, but I believe he's tried to get us to understand this picture. So if we avoid or skip over some of the difficult passages, we don't grasp the ultimate purpose behind this beautiful, beautiful design he has for us. So in Ezekiel 23, God verbally smacks his people in the face. That, that's God's purpose. Verbally smacks them in the face. To get them to wake up from where they are. These people, like our culture, the people of God had adopted extremely perverse sexual customs 
as part of their being dragged into Canaanite worship. Now, these passages are not really enjoyable to read. These aren't the ones you go to to be just, oh, I just, I just need encouragement. I need a blessing, Lord. I need comfort. I need uplift. I need to be inspired. Ezekiel 23 is not the place to go for that. Again, we'll get there. But they're in the Bible. And there are even churches today and people in churches who are trapped and deceived. Many in churches today are no longer convicted by what the Bible describes as being perverse. They would be shocked, shocked if their pastor simply read verses of the Bible on a Sunday morning and yet they will view pornography on the internet and on their phones but can't handle a few strong verses of Scripture. Now, I know the greatest moral virtue in our culture today seems to be tolerance. And we're told not to judge. We are being told today that children in elementary school and younger should know their sexual preference or they should be able to change their gender if they want to without their parents' consent. We have parents allowing teenagers to sleep together in their own homes. We've accepted perversion into our lives. In some places, we've accepted perversion into the life of the church, and yet some people would be offended if their pastor read these verses of Scripture on a Sunday morning. And in all kinds of churches, in all kinds of churches, there are people who are regularly involved in sexual sin, but it's become acceptable. I'm especially concerned for young people who are involved in church but are not taught about how how our relationships are to be the picture of God's relationship with us see I don't want this just to be do this don't do this do this don't do this because we said so because the church says so because the Bible says so because the pastor says so that's not good enough I want people to understand the why and we've got young people who are often in a Christian atmosphere and yet there are a few constraints on their lives and their behaviors and this leads to confusion. And if church leaders understood and taught God's portrayal of these relationships, and I believe some destruction might be avoided. The reason that any sexual activity other than a man and a woman in covenant marriage is a sin is because it misses the plan of God. God doesn't hate anybody. God doesn't hate anybody who's having sin outside of Marriage, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual or whatever it might be, he doesn't hate anybody. We don't hate anyone. But the reason why the Bible describes it to be within the parameters that the Bible describes is simply because it misses the plan of God. And we explained it the first week as to how God painted a beautiful masterpiece that marriage is to be the picture, the kind of relationship he wants with us. And we think we can improve on the masterpiece, so we take a can of spray paint and spray paint over a beautiful masterpiece like a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh. So it just, it, it, it's sin because it misses God's best plan. It's sin not, not because, you know, don't be offended by the word. It's sin because it ultimately hurts the purpose of God. And this purpose is relating the message of the relationship he wants with humanity to the world through a beautiful portrait of faithful, joyous human sexuality in marriage. I'm to play the role of the husband. My wife is to play the role of the church. And we're trying to portray this picture. God wants us to portray this picture to the world as an example of the kind of relationship he wants with us. And we destroy the message God planned to portray if we don't live out those roles accordingly. It's also sin because it ultimately hurts us. Because if we live 
the way God planned for us to live, we'll be able to avoid so much sorrow and pain that God has warned us about. Now, in one way, none of us can avoid it because we're all imperfect humans, and I've been a horribly imperfect husband and father at times. So I brought pain because even in my relationship with a wife in the covenant of marriage, I've stepped outside of God's plan. I've said things that have hurt her. I've done things that have hurt her. I've misbehaved in ways I shouldn't have. So we all we all mess it up. I'm not standing up here as some kind of, you know, greater than the Pope holy man to tell you I do it right and you've all messed it up. No, no, we've all messed it up. Okay. No matter how we've messed it up, we've all, we've all messed it up. And so that's why stepping outside of God's plan is sin is because it hurts us. And he doesn't want us to be hurt. If we lived the way God planned for us, we'd be able to avoid a lot of pain and sorrow God's warned us about. Now, if you have not read this particular chapter from the prophecy of Ezekiel, Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel was a, he was a prophet after Israel had been destroyed. The nation of Israel had been destroyed by the Assyrians and their people taken captive. And then the southern nation of Judah, they were, they were invaded by Babylon and the Babylonians, which is modern-day Iraq. They invaded modern-day Israel, and they went in. They, they destroyed people. They killed people. They destroyed homes, and they took people as slaves. Ezekiel was a slave when he writes this prophecy. He is a slave in Babylon, and he's, God is using him to try to explain to the people why I allowed this foreign nation to come in and destroy you and take you as slaves. It's because you missed this picture. You began to worship other gods. Now, if you've not read this passage in a while, or maybe never, you're probably going to be shocked today. Some might have your first, your first instinct, instinct might to be chuckle a little bit at first reading, you know, because we, we laugh when we're embarrassed. Sharon and I spent a year in the Philippines. And that, that's, that's their first reaction, almost always, is to laugh. We, and they do different things on the news over there. We, we saw people who had been killed in shootings and killed in car wrecks, and they're on the news at 6 o'clock, laying in a morgue with a stone brick under their head and a group of people around laughing. Laughing, because they don't know what else to do. It's, it's, it's their reaction to uncomfortable situations and embarrassment. That might happen this morning. Some may gasp. Some may weep. And yet, yet we watch television shows and sports games with unending commercials for sexual enhancement, and we're not embarrassed by that anymore, are we? After all, it's only for our personal enjoyment, right? It's just recreation, but... But the picture that the scripture paints is quite different. And we see on a daily, continuous basis, there's no limit to the hour. There's no limit to what we can access on our phones. Facebook is going to, my phone will hear what I preach today and I'll get advertisements on Facebook. Right? It's going to happen. So we see and we hear all kinds of advertisements, and our children do as well, and the message is that none of us is big enough to be sexually satisfying to anyone unless we take some supplement. Women's breasts need to be bigger. Men's male organs need to be bigger. Everything needs to last longer. And we watch movies and television shows regularly where people are sleeping together out of wedlock. Our young people are exposed to graphic sexual scenes that are unrealistic and then causing problems when they get married because the reality is never like the movie. And the openness of homosexuality continues to increase and become more common and graphic and yet some are going to be defended by this discussion from the passage of the bible and you know what now you know what's been happening now comedy comedy has been presenting bestiality 
You see, historically, this is the track that the entertainment industry takes to acclimate their viewers to the message. They start by getting people to laugh at something that seems outrageous. And once it becomes a part of the psyche, they present it regularly as something serious and accepted. Polygamy is starting to be normalized. Transgenderism. So this is where we are, from Madonna to Lady Gaga to Miley Cyrus and movies like Magic Mike and Brokeback Mountain portraying male strippers and homosexual cowboys. They get the world's awards. Even people who are supposed to be Christians will allow themselves to be entertained by these portrayals that are so far from God's plan as described in the Bible, yet we will gasp if the pastor reads a passage like we're going to read this morning. Well, we should be shocked. We should be shocked at where we are. We should be shocked at what we have sunk to. We should be shocked at what we have accepted. So this morning, as you think about God's message regarding Israel and Judah and their capital cities of Samaria and Jerusalem, do not be offended by God's words. They're not my words, they're God's words. Think about how this applies to our own society. Think about how this applies to our culture. Think about how this may apply to your own life. Try to get a picture of how God feels about where we are as a culture. Try to get a picture of where God feels about where we are as the people of God today. Try to get a picture of where God feels about where we are as individual families, our individual homes, and where you are as an individual. What have you accepted? What has become commonplace in your life and if you're going to be shocked by something you read in the scripture then why are you allowing it in your life on a regular basis and some of you the worldview i'm presenting today may be brand new and you've never even heard a worldview like i'm going to be presenting before because all you know is the freedom the so-called freedom that the world has presented in our culture that's just led to hurts but as i get ready to share this i sometimes wonder why is this description off limits in church but it's acceptable from our televisions as we eat dinner So in the first four verses, in the first four verses of Ezekiel 23, through the prophet Ezekiel, explaining to them why they're slaves in a foreign land, why their parents and grandparents have been killed, why their homes have been destroyed, why their teenagers have been castrated and put into the king's harem, why has God allowed this to his people? God's answering that question through Ezekiel. And he tells a story of two sisters. It's a parable, like the parables of Jesus. It's a parable. It's a story. And he tells the story of two sisters born of the same mother. And he said in verses 3 and 4, they became prostitutes. These two sisters became prostitutes in Egypt. Even as young girls, they allowed men to fondle their breasts. The older girl was named Ahola and her sister was Aholabah. I married them. I married these girls, God said. Now... You might often say, okay, well, well, does that mean God allows for polygamy? No, Jesus said no man can serve two masters, so the Bible's not for polygamy, okay? But God didn't want Israel and Judah to be divided, but Israel and Judah missed God, and so that's the first thing that happened. They had a civil war like we did, except they split north and south. Israel was the north, Judah was the south. So they were one. The reason there's two is because, again, they had messed it up. So So it's a picture. It's a story. It's a parable. There's two sisters, Ahola and Aholabah. I married them, and they bore me sons and daughters. That's the people of Israel, the people of Judah. And so he says, I am speaking of Samaria and Jerusalem. For Ahola is Samaria, and Aholabah 
is Jerusalem. Jesus told parables. Nobody understood them. He didn't bother to explain them. God begins to explain his parable from the get-go. Two sisters, one represents Samaria, one represents Jerusalem. Samaria is the capital city of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital city of, of Judah. So we see this as a parable because two sisters represent these cities, the capital cities of the two nations of the Jewish people after they were divided. Samaria was the capital of Israel in the north. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah in the south. And, and then God begins, God himself begins to tell a graphic sexual story to get a message across to his people. Again, he designed the sexual relationship to be in covenant between a male husband and a female bride as a living illustration. That's the why. That's the purpose. A living illustration to humanity of his relationship to us as our husband and us as his bride. Now, throughout this story, God vividly describes how his intention has been distorted by humanity. Ezekiel is writing to people who have had their country invaded, their homes destroyed, their temple destroyed, their freedom removed. They've been taken as slaves and refugees to another country. And through this writing, God reminds them of how they got where they are and what he is going to do about it. So this is not a story about two sisters. God is portraying Samaria, the capital city of Israel, and Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, as these two sisters. And they represent the people, much like people say, well, Washington said today... You know, so-and-so was in Prague today and gave the message from Washington. Well, what's that mean? That means that's the message of the United States. The word in the city of Washington represents the United States. So Israel and Jerusalem represent the whole people, the whole nation. And God is portraying these two sisters in the story as sexually promiscuous because it's the picture. And you see it from Genesis to Revelation when you begin to see it. He says they became prostitutes in Egypt. When Israel was in Egypt, after the days of Joseph, before the days of Moses, God's people began to worship pagan deities back then. That's what this is referring to. He's taken them through their history. And God pictures the worship of these pagan deities as his bride committing adultery and prostitution against him. They've left God for the falsely advertised pleasure of the foreign nation's gods, and their leaving God is pictured by him in terms of having sex outside of a marriage between a husband and a wife. That's why our relationships are designed to be the way they are, because it's a picture of the, what relationship he wants with us, and we mess it all up. See, the New Testament tells us that our bodies belong to the Lord until we're married. Belongs to the Lord. They don't belong to anyone else. They're not anyone else's property. No one has a right to do anything with our bodies until we give our body to someone of the opposite sex in marriage, which is God's gift intended to portray the kind of relationship Jesus wants with us. No part of your body is a toy for someone else to play with. The New Testament also tells Christians who are unmarried to treat those of the opposite sex, opposite gender as brothers and sisters. So a follower of Christ desiring to have sexual activity without marriage according to the New Testament is supposed to ask, would I do this with my brother or my sister? Even if you're dating, even if you're serious, even if you're engaged, your body belongs to the Lord until you're in covenant. The other person's body also belongs to God and is not yours until you are joined in covenant marriage. Again, there's forgiveness for everything in the past. There's new start and fresh purity and righteousness from this day forward for anybody who wants it. But those who enter into marriage are not giving their bodies to one another as a form of slavery. Rather, as those who follow God give their whole lives to Him, those who enter into marriage freely give their bodies to one another for a person who belongs to God, the body belongs to him until we enter into this sacred agreement. Ezekiel goes on in verses 5 through 8 that Ahola, 
the sister representing Samaria, it says she lusted after others and gave her love to the Assyrian officers. Assyria was the world power before Babylon. Assyria was the power that destroyed Israel. Babylon was the power that destroyed Judah. So he says the the girl that represents Samaria, Israel, the northern nation, lusted after others, gave her love to the Assyrian officers, and he describes them as being handsomely dressed and stunning chariot drivers. He says in verse 7, she prostituted herself with the most desirable men of Assyria, worshiping their idols and defiling herself. Again, it's a picture. It's a picture of how they went away from God to worship false gods. And he says that when she left Egypt after he rescued her and married her, she did not leave her prostitution behind. He refers to her as, verse 8, lewd as in her youth when the Egyptians slept with her, fondled her breast, and used her as a prostitute. So when David was the king of Israel and Solomon was the king of Israel, Israel was a strong nation. When they became weaker after Solomon's reign, they did not turn to God for strength. Instead, they signed peace treaties with other nations. They trusted other nations instead of God. Their leaders and their people intermarried with people of other nations. This was never about race, but it was out of concern that their faith would be diluted and destroyed, and it was. They took the religions of the other nations into the life and the fabric of their nation. And after Solomon's reign, the nation split by north and south into two nations. The northern nation became Israel, capital city of Samaria. Southern nation was Judah, capital city of Jerusalem. In verses 9 and 10, God's parable then describes the fact that the Assyrian nation invaded and destroyed Israel, and God's description of this historic event is in verses 9 and 10. I handed her over to her Assyrian lovers, whom she desired so much. They stripped her, took her, took away her children as their slaves, and then killed her. After she received her punishment, her reputation was known to every woman in the land. So even though Israel had looked to Assyria for friendship and protection, Assyria invaded and destroyed them. God allowed this to happen. He used it as a sign to his remaining covenant people in the south, Judah, with their capital city, Jerusalem. It was a warning to them. Be careful. What happened to Israel is going to happen to you. I don't want it to happen to you. But, but in verses 11 through 13, he talks about Aholabah, Jerusalem. She saw what happened to her northern sister, yet she did the same thing. In fact, verse 11 says she was even more depraved, abandoning herself to her lust and prostitution. So the southern nation of Judah, after seeing what had happened to Israel, they still thought they still thought they could be friends with Assyria rather than trust in God. Yet it would also lead to their destruction in the same way, trusting in any power other than God. Be it earthly or spiritual will bring about the destruction of any person, any family, any church, any nation. The picture of relationship that God wanted to portray was obviously destroyed in both Israel and Judah by their participation in the worship of other gods. When our relationships do not follow the pattern of God's picture, we fail to portray the message that he wants us to portray. So a lifestyle that is not in line with God's message and plan, it will bring about our destruction. We're not against it for the sake of being against it. The Bible's not against it for the sake of being against it. It brings about destruction. It doesn't show the picture God wants to show. And we will have no power to save anyone else from their own destruction. Ezekiel goes on to describe the next phase of Judah's prostitution. He says in verses 14 through 17 that Aholabah, the sister representing Jerusalem, fell in love with pictures. Interesting pictures that were painted on a wall 
pictures of Babylonian military officers outfitted in striking red uniforms. Handsome belts encircled their waists. Flowing turbans crowned their heads. They were dressed like chariot officers from the land of Babylonia. And when she saw these paintings, she longed to give herself to them. So she sent messengers to Babylonia to invite them to come to her. So they came and committed adultery with her, defiling her in the bed of love. After being defiled, however, she rejected them in disgust. So Assyria was not enough. Judah has to go to Babylon and cozy up with the Babylonians as well. And this can be applied in so many ways. Notice the mention of pictures. Pictures that create sexual desires. When we use images to gratify our sexual desires, rather than making love with a spouse of the opposite sex within the confines of marriage, how in the world can we be reflecting any kind of a relationship with God? That's a picture of humanity being self-sustaining without a need for God. Think about this. I've said every single, every single solitary, I've explained some. I'm not going to repeat myself. Last week, we talked every single solitary detail of our sexuality is either a picture of what God wants or a picture that's a distortion. If we can satisfy ourselves and we don't need anybody else, that's a picture that we don't need God. We can live a perfectly fulfilled, holy, healthy, happy life without God. But that's not the case. So in verses 18 through 21, God says he became disgusted. Okay, get ready. I'm not going to leave this on the screen for long. I trust you. Trust me, trust me, trust me. But it's God's word. God says he became disgusted with this woman he married and rejected her because she flaunted herself and gave herself to satisfy the lusts of other men, meaning other nations. The Bible says that she, representing the people of God, she turned herself to even greater prostitution she lusted after lovers with genitals as large as a donkey's and emissions like those of a horse those aren't my words it's the bible look it up for yourself so you know it's really there the message renders verse 18 she exhibited her sex to the world so so god god himself is speaking so graphically because that's often the only way we'll pay attention even after this judah didn't listen Judah didn't pay attention. Judah didn't repent. Judah didn't obey because the people were so comfortable in their sin. The message here is that even after watching Israel fall, Judah goes into even deeper sin. Some today never thought that we would live in a culture. We never thought we would live in a culture where sexual practices outside the relationship guidelines God gave us in the Bible would become so accepted and so approved. Sexual practices outside God's plan are everywhere throughout our media and in our culture and speaking against them gets you labeled a bigot committing hate speech. Many people who confess to be Christians, including leadership in some church organizations, are accepting and promoting and endorsing lifestyles in opposition to God's picture. And I have to wonder if it's because they've never seen the picture. I've gotten to the place where I, I, I don't really get super angry or mad about all this. Just, there's a whole lot of people who've never seen the picture. People in church have never seen it. They've just been told the do's and the don'ts. They've never been told the why. They've never been shown the picture that it's supposed to portray. So they're ignorant. Many people no longer live according to the Bible's teaching, so children are raised, and they never see this biblical portrayal of relationships. 
And there are those who do live according to the teaching of the Bible, but they don't understand how their lives are to be a reflection of God's relationship with humanity because this concept has not been taught. Leaders are teaching morality as a legalistic list instead of as a beautiful picture portraying the relationship God wants with us. And this picture is not just limited to sexual sin. When we say that we can do anything we want to, and God will always accept us no matter how we live, we believe something other than God in the teaching of the Bible. We are to acknowledge our sin, but not accept our sin. Same is true when we disregard multiple passages of God's word or we completely misconstrue their clear meaning. We are not consistent with the teaching of the Bible if every lifestyle choice is endorsed and accepted. There are many behaviors of which the Bible clearly does not approve. And I believe it's also a problem when church leaders believe what the Bible says, but they ain't got the guts to teach it for fear of being seen as hateful or angry or unloving or offending church members. The Apostle John tied God and his word so closely together that ultimately when we accept anything in opposition to God's word, we are rejecting Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. If we ignore the word, we're ignoring Jesus. The only option God has for that is personal judgment because he keeps his word. The problem with Israel and Judah was acceptance of everything except God and his ways. What about us? Isn't it true that the culture we live in today, God's response is that they're going to be ravaged to destruction. He describes this in verses 22 through 35. The very nations that Judah aligned with and relied on, the ones described graphically as lovers, they will be the ones who destroy them. And the description of their defeat is as graphic as the telling of their sin. Verses 25 to 35, they'll cut off your nose and your ears and any survivors will be slaughtered by the sword. Your children will be taken away as captives. Everything that is left will be burned. They will strip you of your beautiful clothes and jewels. In this way, I will put a stop to the lewdness and prostitution you brought from Egypt. They will treat you with hatred and rob you of all you own, leaving you stark naked. The shame of your prostitution will be exposed to all the world. You brought all this on yourself by prostituting yourself to other nations, defiling yourself with all their idols. You must bear the consequences of all your lewdness and prostitution. They're going to be attacked by the nations that they trusted. They're going to be mutilated in these attacks. Many are going to be killed. They're going to be plagued by terrorism. I know this is depressing. Is there any escape? The only escape is for them to turn back to God. As the creator, God knows the behaviors that will bring the most joy and satisfaction in our lives. For those of us living since the time of God coming to us in Jesus Christ, our greatest satisfaction is found in a relationship with him. Our personal relationships, especially our sexual relationships, are to be an example of the way he has revealed how he connects with us. So come to Jesus. Let Jesus be your lover. Give yourself only to him. Live only for him. Let every decision you make involve him and he will bring you through whatever you're going through to a life of eternal joy. I am married. I make no decisions apart from my wife. And if I do, it still affects her, right? We're tied. Everything, everything I do affects my relationship with her. And so I am married to the Lord. I must take him and my relationship with him into consideration with everything I do. So is that your practice? Is everything you do pleasing to him? Think about everything you're involved with. Think about your work. Think about your play. Think about your ministry. Think about your personal relationships. 
boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses? Are you considering how it all affects your relationship with Jesus? How is it affecting the message that he wants your life to portray to our community? Is your life a reflection of this mysterious picture that he's painted? Whatever it is you are trusting in to make your life great, if it is not Jesus, it will end up terrorizing you. Any way in which we vary from the path he's laid out for us, that path will lead to personal terrorism and destruction. A guy by the name of Larry Norman 50 years ago wrote about the destruction we face and how we can escape it in a song he called, Why Don't You Look Into Jesus? The lyrics describe a person struggling with various addictions, unable to medicate his sorrows with alcohol or heroin. He, de- he describes the tragedy of being afflicted with a sexually transmitted disease, yet he still is vainly trying to find solace in multiple relationships relationships and the individual he sings about works long hours and makes good money but it's never enough and he concludes the song by singing if you're unhappy and you don't know how why don't you look into Jesus he's got the answer so in verses 36 through 39 God tells Ezekiel that he must confront the people with their sins Ezekiel had to deliver this message. And this is why church leaders today can't be silent. We have to speak. We have to speak the truth with love. And God again clearly states that their actions against him constitute an equivalent to adultery and murder. Verse 37, adultery by worshiping idols and murder, by burning as sacrifices the children they bore to me. He also speaks of how their house of worship was defiled. So once again, we see a description of sex outside of marriage and the sacrifice of children as betraying God. So it's not hard to see that God gave us marriage as a picture of our relationship with him. And sexual activity beyond that grieves God because it destroys the picture. It destroys the masterpiece. In addition, the sacrifice of children, it says, angers him. And again, again, for everything, 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 anything any one of us has ever done, there is forgiveness. There's grace. And man, I have needed it in my life. I'll tell you, I've needed it in my life. I thank God for grace. And I pray that today you'll know that there's grace for anything that any of us have ever done in our lives. And while we as a nation have taken some good steps recently, we still regularly kill our children before they're born. And sometimes during or after birth. As we've said, there are some states now that want to pass laws that say you've got 20 days after the birth to decide whether or not you want to give any medical care to the child or to let it die. There's something that dawned on me as I was thinking about this message this weekend. I don't mean to get political. This is not a political message at all. It's just trying to, trying to say, how, how, how does this relate to us? That's the real question, isn't it? How does this relate to us personally and also as a nation? So Israel cozied up to the Assyrians who hated them. Judah cozied up to the Babylonians who hated them. After they had been serving other gods and literally, literally throwing their children into fires. Altars of Molech. Molech was a big god. Molech was a huge statue, and they either had a great big mouth or he had his arms outstretched, and they threw their babies onto the fire that was lit on that altar. 
It was 50 to 60. People say America was a Christian nation. Well, I, I don't know that nations can be Christian. People can be Christian. Have you been to the Christian bookstore? How can a bookstore be a Christian? What bookstore repented of its sins, came to the altar, turned to Jesus, got saved? Books can't be Christian. Bookstores can't be Christian. Musicians can't be Christian. Music can't. Only people can be Christian or not. But there has been a time in our past where most of our nation lived by a biblical ethic. Born again or not, knowing Jesus or not, but the World, the world War II generation, 65% of them were raised in church or Sunday school. 65%. Our generation now, less than 10% are being raised in church. My kids have taken foster kids into their home, our foster grandkids. They, they, they've never known anything, any, zero, zero about the Word, the Bible, Scripture, whatever. Don't say that in a condemning way. It's just reality. It's just what it is. But, but it's, interesting that it was, it's interesting that it was 50 to 60 years ago. I'm not prophesying. I'm just, I'm just musing. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud, and I'm taking these things to the Lord myself. But it's been 50 to 60 years ago that we said kids can't pray in school anymore. It's been 50 to 60 years ago that we said the Bible cannot be taught in schools anymore. We've been having wars ever since then about whether a football coach can even pray or a choir director can pray with their students in school. It's been... 50 to 60 years ago that we made abortion the law of the land until recently. And it's also been 50 to 60 years ago, the early 1970s, when President Nixon and Henry Kissinger opened the door to China. And George W. Bush, the first one, George H.W. Bush, was the U.N. ambassador. And then he was the ambassador to China and all through these years, regardless of political party, we have let China get away with everything. And we've cozied up to them. And we think we can be their friends and they can be our friends and they'll love us, kind of like Assyrians might love Israelis. Or kind of like Babylonians might love the people of Judah. Or kind of like the people in Iraq and Iran... And Palestine might love the people of Israel today. I'm just looking for how we can apply this today. Our nation has turned its back on God. Our nation has sacrificed our children. And our nation has cozied up and given everything to another nation who hates us. And I'm not prophesying, but folks, God never committed in this book to keep the United States of America until Jesus comes back. Every empire that has risen has fallen. But I can tell you this. I'm a part of a kingdom that's greater than the United States of America. Paul said we are citizens of heaven. And no matter what happens to this nation, whether it happens this week, next week, next year, 10 years, 100 years, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I know that anything's possible. I know that anything's possible, and we're going along about our happy-go-lucky lives thinking everything is going to be all right, ignoring a whole lot of signs, signs in the heavens above the Scripture talks about even. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And we just, we just give ourselves over to these other lovers and prostitute ourselves to them and commit adultery with them and sacrifice our children for the sake of our convenience, and the pattern 
of God, his past practice is to allow those nations to be destroyed by the ones they choose to cozy up with. I'm just thinking out loud. But I know that no matter what happens, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And my king is not part of a political party. My king doesn't make promises he doesn't keep. My king's not a liar and a hypocrite. My king is Jesus. And he's not only my king, he's my husband and I'm his bride. So we just got to think about these things. God spoke of the people defiling their temple. And many people today will enter into churches singing and they'll nod their heads at the preacher. And they might be involved in various kinds of ministry and yet also they're regularly involved in practices that destroy God's masterpiece for our sexuality. Do not be deceived into thinking that it's all going to be okay. Sin is forgiven. Yes, sin is forgiven where there is repentance. But there's no forgiveness without repentance. So God begins to conclude this story. Forgive me for my length. I don't think the next two weeks will be longer. They won't be as hard. They'll be beautiful. Come back. They'll be beautiful. The next two weeks, the picture is going to get beautiful. But God concludes the story in verses 40 through 49, describing how the sisters continue to try to get more men. They tried to dress themselves up, and carousing of men could be heard from their room. But God said the men were just drunkards from the wilderness. He said in verse 43, if they really wanted to have sex with old worn-out prostitutes like these, let them. He said Israel and Judah, his people, his bride, he said they were shameless prostitutes. They were adulterers. They were murderers. He repeats that they will be judged and butchered for their lewdness and their adultery. And God's punishment for them is a warning to us. He shares this with us because he loves us. This is a message of love. It's a warning of love. It's not meant to close the door forever on judgment. It's meant to say, turn, turn, turn. There's a better way. There is forgiveness. There is life. When we live in a plan other than God's plan, God allows terrible consequences. God's desire desire is for the consequences to change our ways just like the sisters in the story many people do not change their ways no matter how much their actions cause them pain but this is still a loving warning we need to pay attention to it the good life is the life lived according to God's plan the good life is the life lived according to God's picture so if you've been living a lifestyle other than the picture God painted and you've not yet faced harsh consequences these are warnings for you do not think that you will escape there's time to change live the way that he planned for you and experience his amazing grace and his amazing love you may be here today specifically because god loves you and he's calling you to himself we are teaching this because we love you none of us none of us here today are yet as far gone as these other nations we are not yet discarded i urge you come to his amazing grace and come to his amazing love. Let's bow our heads together this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.